Have you ever been hiking and came to a fresh stream of water? Maybe you were desperately thirsty and you were so excited. Here's the stream of water. It's exactly what you've been waiting for, right? It looks so pure and safe as it flows over the rocks. Look how nice that water looks right there. And, and it's just like a sound machine. It's calm. It's like this must be safe. It must be good water. While sometimes that water can be fairly pure, many times there are microscopic parasites and germs that we just can't see. The water looks so good from afar, yet you may regret just taking a scoop of that water and drinking it. Today we're going to talk about a church that seemed to be doing pretty well, just like that water. It looked pure from afar, and there were good things going on, but this was an infant church, and it still had some things to work out. And we pull out the microscope today, we're going to see that there were some parasites that threatened the integrity of this church. As we study 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, I pray that we're able to also reflect on our own lives as we look at this and zoom in on any impurities that we may find in our, ourselves as well. So join me as we read God's word, starting at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to Uh, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. To each one of you, or that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives us, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for allowing us to worship you this morning. We thank you for allowing us to gather today for, keep, for getting us here safely, Lord. And God, I know we have a lot of things that we go through, and we talked about this in growth group. It's so hard sometimes to come to church and, and be able to focus on the Word, to focus on worship, because we're worried about all these other things in our lives. So Lord, I just pray that you supernaturally help us to clear our minds, open up our hearts to hear your Word, and may you preach through me. May it not be my words, but your words. And God, this is a difficult uh, subject to talk about. This is a, a, a very countercultural sermon to talk about today. And so, God, I just pray that you that you uh, just help us through this, help us to learn and glean from your word. Lord, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you as I preach book by book and verse by verse. I come to, to sections like this that I might not pick as my top one to want to preach, but God, you have so much truth and and mercy and grace in all of this, God. And so I just pray that you be with us today and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to discuss three actions that a Christian should make top priority in his or her life. The first is, as a Christian, you should please God, verses 1 and 2. You should please God. I'm going to read, reread verses 1 and 2. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
So Paul, it's been a couple of weeks now since uh, Pastor Tim filled in for me the last couple of weeks, but if we go back to the end of chapter 3, we, if we remember, Paul had just finished praying for this church, that they would be holy, that they would be ready for the second coming of Christ even, and that they would be established and blameless. And in verse 1, he asks and even urges them to continue pressing on, to, to continue moving forward. He doesn't just stop at that word ask. He even goes to that word urge or exhort uh, to, or admonish them to, to move forward. And he uses that we see this on and on. And that on and on, actually, some translations may say abound or excel. Uh, it means not just stopping where they are, but continuing moving forward. And I think it's really important for us to understand what he is urging them to excel in, and that is to please God. And we hear that, and it sounds like a really esoteric co- uh, comment. Please, God, well, what does that mean? And, and a lot of your handout, we're just going to go through uh, fairly quickly at the beginning here. But I want us to go through a few scriptures uh, that kind of talk about a topic that comes up time and time again, Old Testament, New Testament. What does it mean to please God? And so we're going to kind of rapid fire through some scriptures here and some points on what it means to please God. And number one, to, in order to please God, we must walk by faith. We must walk by faith. We see this in Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So we know that, that's got to be that beginning. You can't please God unless you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You, you, you will not please God unless you are in Christ. Number two, we must not walk in the sinful desires of the flesh. We see this in Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when we're thinking only of ourselves, only of our own desires, we're not going to be pleasing in the Lord's sight. Number three, we must keep his commandments in obedience to him. We see this in 1 John 3, 22, in obedience to him. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We also see that in John, where if you love me, you will obey my commands, is what Jesus says. Number four, we must trust in him alone, fear him alone, and hope in him alone. When the psalmist is talking about a righteous man, he says this, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. What, what the psalmist is saying, don't rely on all the things on earth, don't rely on other people to bring you satisfaction, to bring you fulfillment, but it is the Lord who provides. We please God when we see him as our sole provider. We Our hope and trust and faith are in him. Number five, we must seek his will and not ours or anyone else's, and we must serve God lovingly from the heart. And in Ephesians 6, 6, we see this, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So God wants our entire heart to be open to him, doing his will. Number six, we must be humble. We must be humble. Psalm 149, 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. God is pleased when we are humble. When we are prideful, he is not. Number seven, we must allow him to work in us, Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God gets pleasure out of working through you. We've talked about Ephesians 2.10 and how he's prepared works for us beforehand. We've talked about that many times. God is pleased to work through you as a believer. And finally, uh, in number eight, we, we have here, we must walk in holiness and be above reproach. Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So in summary, 
What is it to walk in a manner worthy of God that pleases God? How do we please God? And, and it's not just doing what we should do. Pleasing God is not just being obedient to God. That is a very big part of it, obviously. We, we see that. But in order, but obedience is it's deeper than that. It's those who love God with a pure heart, uh, who, who look at Him as their provider, their protector, who, who seek Him because they love Him. They appreciate the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross. They appreciate the free gift of eternal life. They, they, they appreciate the fact that they can approach God with, through repentance and, and, and receive eternal life. And they desire to be with Christ for all eternity in heaven. Those who seek to please God see His will as their primary motivation for a living. And I think that's, that's a difficult thing. His will must be our primary motivation for a living. Nothing else. You know, not, not money, not pleasures, not fame, not fortune, not even someone else not trying to do that, but it must be Him that is our primary motivation for a living. And Christ, He, he does this so well. He lives His whole life this way. And as He's in the garden, He says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But then what is it? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If we want to please God, we live in a way like that. Not my will, but yours be done. My heart is for you, Lord, you alone. Are you seeking to please God? When you look at your own life, when you look at what you've, uh, how you prioritize what you do, when you look at your week schedule and you look at, at how your week looks like, is God your priority? Is pleasing Him your number one? Or is it, ah, I'd like to do this, I want to do this, I, I, I. Or even someone else. Maybe it's a significant other. You know, may, may, maybe it's your, it's your husband or your wife. Maybe it's a, a child. Maybe it's a parent. And your whole life is actually about pleasing that person. That could be a people pleaser. We saw that being a people pleaser does not bring God glory, does not please God. We need to be God pleasers. And so you can be following the Lord, as we saw here. We, we saw Timothy bring a good report in chapter 3. Uh, last chapter we saw, hey, the church was actually doing pretty well. They were loving each other. They were still loving Paul. They were still loving Timothy. They were loving Silas. And, and, th- and they, were doing, they were walking in truth in that way. But yeah, as we're going to see, there, there were still some issues. There, there were still some, some deep-rooted sins in this church that, that needed to be ironed out, needed to be worked on. And this battle that was still going on was the battle of the flesh. Which brings us to our next point. As a Christian, you should practice purity. You should practice purity. And verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And verse 3 starts off with one of the most important instructions that he gives them, that they need to be seeking personal holiness. They need to be seeking personal holiness. We'll see this phrase, will of God, in, in chapter 5 as well. Uh, and we're going to that more at, at, at that time. But in this context, context, we see the wills, will of God in relation to personal purity and holiness. God wants to see his children becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like this world. And the word sanctification refers to the process of making one more holy. Once a person is saved, we are filled with what? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells you once you've repented of your sins, you've turned to Christ for salvation. The Holy Spirit fills you. But that, that's not the end. Yes, that's when you are saved, you are justified, your sins are covered, but you're not just like Christ at that point. And then we come to a progressive sanctification that God does in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit and through spiritual disciplines, such as reading the Word, Bible reading, you know, like, or quiet times, reflection with the Lord, worship, fasting, serving, different things. Those spiritual disciplines are the key and continue to move forward in sanctification. 
uh, and they help you walk through this. Note then Paul urges them to abstain from sexual morality at the end of verse 3. And this word abstain means to keep far from, avoid, to flee from, not partake in. And Paul is speaking to a church that is in a pagan culture. If, if you don't know much about Roman culture, it was pretty bad, uh, especially when it comes to sexual morality. So if we look at, at Thessalonica, they had temples with cult prostitutes that would celebrate sexual morality. And frankly, even some of the greatest thinkers and philosophers, such as Cicero, continually preached that, that the youth and even adults should have sexual freedom. And I could go into a lot of details that we just don't have time for or need to go into today, but, but just think, just remember how, how pagan this culture is. Sadly, though, it's starting to sound pretty familiar in today's culture too, isn't it? Uh, when we kind of look at that, we're in a time in our nation's history where we're becoming kind of like the Romans, actually very similar to the Romans, very, very similar to Thessalonica here. We're in a time where immorality is celebrated, we're in a time where truth and the lines of truth are blurred. What is right and what is wrong is blurred. Homosexuality and transgenderism is normalized. It's just, you know, we even, not only is it normalized, it's celebrated for a whole month in June, as we've talked about before. We're in a time when marriage is optional. We're, and we're in a time where explicit images are available to anyone at any time on any device. However, we are called to abstain and avoid all forms of sexual morality. And some people read that phrase, sexual immorality. I remember even as a child, trying to, and as a young person, trying to figure out what does that really mean? The Greek word is, is pornea. Uh, pornea. And, and if we look at that, you know, I remember just being like, okay, I shouldn't watch this or I shouldn't do that. You know, and I was always taught, you know, don't have intercourse before marriage. And that was kind of where it ended. But this word actually is all-encompassing. If we're looking at sexual morality, it, it is a command that actually says the believer, any sexual contact outside of the bounds of a marriage, the covenantal marriage between one biological man, man and one biological woman is sin. And Jesus even took it to the next level. I remember being in college and just hearing this, this pastor preach on this weekend retreat I was at, and he reads this, these verses from Jesus, Matthew five twenty seven through 28. You have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Being like, whoa, so even your mind, your thoughts are like committing adultery. God sees it the exact same way. Yeah, the consequences are different. The consequences are going to be different, but, but God sees it as sin, as adultery, as if you've already committed the act. And we live in a culture that, that idolizes sexuality. And, and how are we to practically fight against sin to the point not only do we not practice sin, but we don't even think about sexual immorality? And that is difficult. It is very difficult when we are in a world of impurity. But Paul's going to go into some practical steps to kind of help us, and we're going to kind of break those down. So let's look at verses 4 and 5 to see what he says. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he starts exhorting the church on how to fight against sexual morality, and he uses a, a term here, self-control. And this is sexual sin has its roots and being a self-control problem. If we look at most sins, it kind of all comes back to self-control. Uh, we, we desire what we desire, and we want it when we want it, and so we're not controlling ourselves. We're not refraining or abstaining from sin, and, and that is one of the, that's the, really the root of sexual sin. And so when we control our, his or her body, our body, in holiness and honor, sexual sin loses its grip. But how do we practically apply that? I mean, what does self-control look like in our lives today? If we're going to take this and try to put some meat on it, and try to figure out, well, how do I practically apply 
this? How do, how do I live purely in a world that is so impure? And it starts, self-control starts with setting appropriate boundaries. And we've mentioned these before, time, like a couple of times, but it's extremely beneficial to remind ourselves. So number one, we must set boundaries for our body. We must set boundaries for our body. Uh, so don't be alone with someone of the opposite sex who isn't your family or isn't your spouse. Have self-control over where you are. We see this played out in Proverbs 7, 6 through 9. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youth a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight and the evening at the time of night and darkness. Note that this young man has been foolish in where he is and when he is there. It is her corner. This is a place where there is prostitution, obviously, as we see uh, the, uh, Solomon right here. He is at the wrong time, and, or the wrong place, and he's definitely at the wrong time. He's at dusk. He, he's at the nighttime where Satan does his dirty work. Nightclubs are called nightclubs, and they meet at night because they think that they can hide their sin in the darkness, and that's how Satan works, but God sees it all. God sees it all. Set appropriate boundaries for your body. Number two, we must set boundaries for our, our eyes, for our eyes. Don't be alone with a computer or phone that does not have accountability software on it. Just don't. Don't put yourself in a situation where your eyes can see something you can't unsee, especially young people. Your brains are being developed, and what you see as a young person, those images stick even more so. So fight it. And adults, same thing. We never get too old or too spiritually mature to not have accountability. Have accountability, my friends. Make sure you do that. Matthew 6, 22-23, Jesus says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. So Jesus compares what we see, what comes through our eyes, as staining the whole person. You know, what we see, what we watch, it stains us. And so that's why the movies that we watch, the magazines that we read, the social media sites that we visit, the, even the books that we read, everything that we see through our eyes, it, it matters. Jesus says it matters immensely, immensely. Good input in your eyes is a life that exudes light. The Word of God, you know, things that exalt Christ, those are things that are going to bring light in your life. Don't think that protecting your eyes is important today. Like, oh, he's kind of blowing that out of proportion, you know. It, it's not really that harmful. Well, Satan most certainly thinks that protecting your eyes is important. That's why he's fighting against it. Actually, an app that I have on my phone called Accountable to You has just rem been removed from the Google Play Store, as well as Covenant Eyes, which is also another good one. And why? Because they're shameware apps. Because it's actually a sin to the world to say that looking at things you shouldn't look at or saying things you shouldn't say is sin. It's just a sad world that we live in that it's been taken off there. The author who writes this article that really led to this, uh, it was on The Wired, which is a liberal, uh, a very liberal, um, progressive, I'll say, website. Um, th this guy says, well, and he also starts himself off by saying that he identifies with the pronouns he and him, which is also a good sign that this is not going to probably be a great article for us, that we have to identify that. He says this, What's common across covenant eyes accountable to you and ever accountable is their zero-tolerance approach to pornography. How dare them? Zero-tolerance approach to pornography. All three suggest in their marketing materials that not only is watching porn a moral failure, by any amount of por but any amount of porn consumption is bad for your health. 
Okay, anybody uh, see a problem with that statement? Um, other than it's being said in a negative way. So note what is actually being said here. What is being said here is we, we're not going to call sin, sin. You know, I know you Christians are going to call sin, sin. I know you're going to say, hey, anything, any sexual morality is a sin. I know, you know, Jesus obviously has just said to even think is sin, much less watching something, much less going down those paths. But they're going to say, oh, you know, it's really not even bad for your health. Like there's, there's no proof, right? There's no scientific proof that, that, that even pornography is bad for your health. And not only is it bad for your health, it's bad for your soul bad for your soul because all sin that is unrepentant that is not covered by the blood of christ if we are not in christ it leads to hell that's a big deal any sin leads to hell every sin is bad it's bad for your soul praise god for those who are in christ there is forgiveness and there is mercy for these people struggling through addictions but it is still big and we need to see it that way not as just something all oh, we can just ask for forgiveness for it is a big sin and see their expert quote here's their expert that they quote here uh, Nicole Pross, a scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. I know you can't imagine how nice this quote's going to be. I've never seen anyone who's been on one of these apps feel better about themselves in the long term. Wow, can you not see the 70s, 80s, and 90s self-esteem movement right here? Because you feel bad about yourself if you use this app and you mess up and your friend has to say, hey dude, don't look at that. Or hey girl, don't look at that. You know, but because you may feel guilty you may feel shame. You may feel like you need to repent. That's, it's bad. This is a bad program because it's going to make you feel bad about yourself. Anything that makes you feel bad about yourself must be bad because you are God. That's humanism 101 right there. Moving on, she says this. So she studies the effects of pornography on the brain and the spread of disinformation on sexual health, which is what I'm presenting today. It's disinformation according to Los Angeles County. Um, these people just end up feeling like there's something wrong with them when the reality is there likely isn't. My friends, there is something wrong with us. It's called sin, and sin leads to death, and that is the problem. And don't, don't you love, this is something you'll always have to see in science. As a scientist myself, as a doctor, I read study after study after study, and anytime you see the word likely, not likely is just as the equivalent. It's the way you spin things. Oh, that, could, that is likely to do this. Well, the same equivalent is that's not likely to do this. They're actually the exact same statement. Just one is taken and is spun in a negative light. The other is spun in a positive light. So she has no proof, no scientific proof. And obviously we know there's biblical proof that it is bad for your health, that, that it, is, uh, it is a problem. There is something wrong with us. We are depraved creatures who need to repent of our sin and ask Jesus for forgiveness. And she says there's not anything wrong. It is so sad that, that this is the world we live in, where, where guilt and shame are, are so far against our cultural norm that we can't, how can you repent if you don't understand that you are guilty? And this is the, and it's even entered, it's in, infused the church too. You won't hear very many pastors stand up and read this. And God, God brings me to these passages, and so I have to preach them. It's not would be my first choice either, right? But it's so important for us to understand that we are guilty before a holy God. We, we deserve death. We deserve hell. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. So this, this shame, this guilt, we, we're not supposed to continue in shame. God took on that guilt and shame on the cross. Praise God for that. There, there, there is mercy. There is forgiveness. 
But we don't get that mercy and forgiveness until we repent, until we admit that we have a problem, a sin problem, that we desire what the depraved things of the flesh, and we don't always desire the Lord like we should. And the only, time, only way we can be saved is to be saved from something. We have to be saved from sin. My friends, we must set boundaries for our eyes. And number three, we must set boundaries for our mind. Do not allow your mind to wander to places of unholiness. Have self-control of what you think. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive, or take every thought captive to obey Christ. We must take control of our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must think of things that are heavenly, not of earthly things. We must think of things that are holy. And how do we do that? We've got to be in the Word regularly and Frankly, if you're, if you're in a battle and there are certain times where you're going to have peaks and you're going to have these parts where temptation doesn't even seem to have any effect on you. You're like, man, I'm having a great season with the Lord. He's all I want and you feel great. You have other times where, man, er, just getting up every single thought is a struggle. And you're like, no, I don't want to think that. No, I don't. And you know what? How do you, how do you fight through? There's some days where, man, you just need to have the word just playing in the background the whole day. Everywhere you go, you just need to be listen, praying with the Lord, praying continually, and, and in the word. That's the only way that we can fight the impurity of our world today. Friends, as believers in Christ, our passion is to be for him and not for ourselves. Our passion should be to please God and not please the sinful desires of the flesh. Moving on into verse 6, Paul says the following, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul gets pretty candid here about God's righteous anger. This thing that they've just said, oh, it's not really a big deal. Well, God says it's a big deal. He's an avenger is what he says. And so if you've not been covered by the blood of Christ, that avenging will come for you, my friends. That's a big deal. And God cares deeply about marriage. Hebrews 13, 4 talks about God's concern that the marriage bed be left undefiled and sexual intimacy only between a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. Our culture of sexual liberation today is in direct opposition to God. Theologian Warren Wearsby said the following, God's commandments concerning sex are not for the purpose of robbing people of joy like the world seems to think. Well, you're just taking all the fun out. You're, but actually, but rather of protecting them that they may not lose their joy. Because here's the thing, joy is a gift from who? The Holy Spirit, from God himself. We see the, the, you know, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit, love, Joy. Joy is only found in Christ. The world doesn't know what joy is. They have happiness. They can be happy. They can feel an emotion. But just as soon as it's there, it's gone because it takes more and more to keep them happy. But we, but if, but we will be given joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Even when we may not feel happy, we'll be given joy if we find, if we seek to please and love our Savior above ourselves and be obedient to the Lord. And finally, number three, as a Christian, you should pursue holiness. You should pursue holiness. Verse 7 again. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Paul summarizes his teaching again with a charge to pursue holiness. God has not called us to impurity, but to purity. Purity. We're not to act like the world. We are set apart from the world. So we should not look or act like the world. When people have a conversation with us, they should leave that conversation differently than they have it with someone who is an atheist or who is not of Christ. Uh, when, when somebody watches what you do day by day, how you live your life, how you prioritize uh, your, your life, how you raise your children, 
how you do anything, they should see something noticeably different than when they look at someone who is not in Christ. We are to be set apart to do the works that Christ has laid out for us. We need to see ourselves as a vessel that is holy and set apart. We, we don't use honorable vessels for dishonorable things. We need to see ourselves that we are bought with a price, that Christ died for us to cleanse us. We are his, we are property of his, and we are to glorify him with our bodies as we see in 1 Corinthians 6.20. And the same body that glorifies Christ should not be used to bring reproach, reproach to Christ. Help us to stand firm. And I know, my friends, it is hard in our culture to, to be pure. It is hard to walk day by day when the sexual immorality of our culture and every other sin that we could imagine is just in your face, no matter what you watch, no matter where you're at, no matter what you walk by. But with God's help through the Holy Spirit, we can persevere. We can succeed. As Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him or Christ who strengthens me. No, we can't fight on our own. If we could, we would. But we have to rely on him. Finally, in verse 8, Paul says this, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Finally, Paul wants them to remember that disregarding what he's saying here isn't disregarding him or Silas or Timothy. This is disregarding God himself. This is the word of God that he is writing. He says, hey, this is from God. Listen to it. And how can one disregard and disrespect the God of the universe who created the universe? The one who has the power and authority over our eternity, whether we spend forever in heaven or in hell. But the one who, knowing that, knowingly sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. The one who, even through that, bore those sins, bore the wrath of God on that tree, and now that we can have salvation in him if we repent and turn to him. And the one who, after saving us, not only saves our souls, but, but wants a relationship with us, that fills us with his Holy Spirit, that helps us to do what he's called us to do. His theologian, Gene Green, stated in his commentary, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is antithetical to a life given over to sexual morality. It means it, it just doesn't make sense. If you, if you are in Christ, you should not be handed over to this issue. In other words, believers may struggle with sexual morality. It will be a struggle. It will be a struggle for just about all of us at some point, at some time. But a true believer will not be entirely given over. They will repent. They will come to a repentance. And what this means is the true believer will continue to struggle and fight. They won't just hand it over and say, okay, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I want to. And God's grace will most certainly cover us. Praise God for God's grace, my friends. But we, we cannot continue if we are in Christ. We will not continue to habitually sin unrepentantly. We see this taught in 1 John 3, 9, one of the toughest verses in Scripture, in my opinion. We went through uh, 1 John. It was actually the first book I preached on, thinking it was going to be an easier book to start the church off with. It was hard. It was a very hard first book to preach through at Cross Point. But here's what John says in chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That is a hard word. And, and some people will take that out of context and misunderstand it. But what John is saying is, if you are in Christ, you will not continue an unrepentant habitual sin. Are we going to keep practicing sinning? Absolutely. We're not. We haven't been raised and glorified in Christ. Yes, the old is gone, the new has come. Our soul has been regenerated, but our flesh is still here. And we still have desires that are sinful, that are still marred by the fall of man. 
But if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And so when you sin, the Bible says you can't be an habitual, unrepentant sin that you're not feeling any conviction about and be a believer. What he says is because the Holy Spirit is inside of you, your soul and spirit have been regenerated, you should feel conviction because you're, you're uniting God with sin and that conviction will fall. Now that conviction can sometimes become less and less as you continue in sin, but eventually you're, you're going you're gonna to break because God disciplines those he loves. He will not let you continue. If you are his, he will chase you down and he will make your life miserable until you do repent. Praise God for that. Have you all ever been in sin to where God took you to the point where you were just miserable? And like, okay, God, I give up. I tap, tapping out, tapping out. Praise God that he pursues us, that, that, that he doesn't just let us. But if you're someone who has been in years of unrepentant sin, and you're like, I still don't feel bad about it. I watch that. I do this. I do that. That's a dangerous place to be, my friends. And sometimes in the Baptist church, we can do a really poor job of preaching salvation. And we can say, oh, you, well, you had this one head nod to God, and, and so now you're good. Whatever you do, you know, they call it the carnal Christian is what I've heard people preach on this. They, okay, you had that one decision. Now you can go live the rest of your life like everyone else, like the world, and still be saved. And my friends, that is not in the scriptures. There is nothing in the scriptures that says that. The Bible actually says that those who are in Christ will persevere to the end. Those, those who are in Christ will continue to be sanctified and look more like Christ today than they did 20 years ago. Yeah, there's going to be hills and valleys. There's going to be times that look better and times that look worse. And, and so uh, that's just God's grace will, will cover those times. But my friends, if you look at your life and you evaluate yourself, are you in unrepentant sin? And can you continue sinning in certain ways and not even feel bad about it? Well, I pray that you, you, you question your heart. You're like, okay, God, am I really in Christ? Have I given you everything? Because God doesn't just take one little part. He doesn't say, okay, you can give me this box, but you can keep that box. No, he wants all of your life. And I just pray and I plead with you to, to just really seek, seek the Lord. Look at your heart. Evaluate your heart. Evaluate where your heart is. And if you ask those questions and you're not sure, I'd love to chat with you after church or anytime this week or whenever and just kind of sit down and praise God. I'd, I'd prefer it to be before the end of the day because we don't know if you got tomorrow. That's just part of life. We, we, we're not guaranteed. We're not going to walk out here and go home or go somewhere else. You know, and I just, I just pray that you make things right with the Lord, that you are sure that you're sure that you're sure that you are in Christ, that you are a new creation. My friends, if you are in Christ, you're going to lose battles. There's going to be times where, where you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting, and you know what? Boom, you go down. There's going to be times where you sin in ways that you never could have expected that you would sin that way. But praise God, his mercy and his grace is there. He will pick you back up, and he will help you along. Looking at the end here, we see Paul say, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I found it interesting that Paul ends this section with, with talking about the Holy Spirit. He wants them to know that the only way they can be sanctified, the only way that they can walk purely, is through the power of God through the Holy Spirit. My friends, we cannot fight this on our own. Yes, boundaries are very important. We talked about setting boundaries for your eyes, your mind, your body. Extremely important. We need to be practical. We, we need to have self-control in certain areas. We need to set boundaries, have apps that, that prevent certain things. Don't go certain places with our body. You know, make sure that we do protect. But the number one thing we need to do is to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the reading of the Word, through prayer, through meditation, prayer with, with the Lord, walking with Him because we know we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Come to our close. We, we, came, we started the sermon off talking about water. We talked about that stream of water and how it looked so good 
but yet there may have been some parasites in there. There may have been some, some issues in there. And we've went through how this church in Thessalonica has been praised for the first three chapters of how wonderful they are. And then we pulled out the microscope and saw, man, there actually are some impurities in this church that need to be dealt with. We need to continue pursuing and pr- pressing on more and more. So what can help us to become more pure? Well, we see in water purification, you can go ahead and go to the next one. I think there's a thing here. Now, now we have some pretty cool inventions, and so you can actually take this with you on a hike, and it has a filtration device on it, and it'll filter out bacteria and dirt and different bad things that can make you sick. And so now that, that, that clear water can actually become pure water through this filtration device. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit is our filtration device, my friends. Through his working in our lives and through the word of God, he will help, and through the spiritual disciplines we've talked about, he filters out the sin in our lives. He, he magnifies it, and he helps us to get rid of those things. He helps us to move forward, continue to becoming more like Christ, he continues to, to wipe us clean. He helps us to deal with those secret sins that nobody knows about, those thoughts that we've had that we'd just be embarrassed if anybody had any idea and that we wouldn't want anybody in our mind at all. But how, how beautiful is it that he knows every thought that you've ever thought he knows everything you've ever did, everything that you thought about doing, and still loves you, still loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins. So we don't need to feel shame. He took that, that shame, he took the, the reproach that we deserved on the cross, and now we can approach him with confidence, but humbly with confidence. Confidence in him and who he is and the work that he's done, not confidence in us because we are dirty, rotten sinners, my friends. We, our, our flesh wants to do what is horrible, but praise God when God sees us, He sees his son, and we can approach him with confidence, not because we're the greatest thing ever, but because he is. He is the greatest thing ever. And so we can approach him knowing that he hears our prayers because of his son, Jesus Christ. I urge you, as Paul did, the church of Thessalonica, to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, to walk in a way that practices purity, and the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk in a way that pursues holiness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this has been a heavy message Lord, uh, sexual morality is a huge issue in our culture. It is a huge temptation. Many modern scientists have actually said it's just like drug addiction with the way neurotransmitters are released and just, just the difficulty of fighting sexual sin. It requires a supernatural power, a supernatural ability that only comes from you. And so I pray that we fully rely on you as we fight the battles of this Christian walk. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to walk in spirit and in truth. And Lord, help us as a a body of believers to support one another as we combat the sins that we may struggle with. Lord, help us to be able to be real with one another. Help us to have accountability partners. Help us to find someone who will be our accountability partner that will ask us how we are doing. And Lord, it's not because of of shameware apps. God, God, it it is deliverance. It is deliverance. When our sin is found out, when we admit those sins, it is freeing, Lord Jesus. When we say, hey, you know what, I need accountability. And even if we're not struggling right now, even if we're somebody that's like, hey, you know what, this isn't even really a a big deal for me, you never know what the future holds. You never know how Satan's going to hit you. And so it's great to have accountability, even if it's not just in sexual morality. It's in wasting your time on social media. It's in all these, there's so many things we just need accountability. So I pray that each one of us seeks out someone that we can be real with, that we can be, have confidentiality, and that we can do life with, Lord. 
And may you use the community of the fellowship to help grow one another closer to you. Lord, forgive us for the times we failed you. Help us to walk in purity among an impure world. Thank you so much for allowing us to worship you this morning. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen.